everybody. It's so good to have you worshiping with us today. Welcome to our online service. I know you're going to be blessed, man. Our communicator today is just going to be a, a delight for you, and you're going to be glad to hear this message. You know, we're working our way through the book of Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 4 today. So, man, get your Bible, open to Galatians chapter 4, get ready to take on the attitude of a student as we start learning here. Today, Marcus Johnson is going to come and bring you a great message from Galatians chapter 4. Man, Marcus is another son of compassion Christian. He grew up in our church, was educated here, discipled here, brought into ministry here. God has used him in a number of different roles in our church, but today he oversees all of our high school and middle school ministries. He teaches our students most weeks. Man, Marcus is a gifted communicator and a godly man. You're going to love him. Look forward to having this great time as we study in Galatians chapter 4. Well, hey, everybody. Man, thank you for joining us as we continue our time looking at the book of Galatians. What we call the book of Galatians is actually a letter written by a man named Paul. Paul was a church planner and a leader of the, of the early Christian movement. And what he would do is he would go to a region that didn't have any followers of Jesus. And he'd talk to them about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And he'd encourage them to put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And many would. And then Paul would help that group organize into a group that would worship God together, love each other, and then love others. And once that church was established, Paul would leave and then go to another place and do the whole thing over again. But even as he left, his heart would stay with those churches and with those people. And so he communicate to them via letters. In fact, much of the New Testament of our Bibles uh, is made up are the least kinds of letters that Paul wrote. And if a church was on track, Paul's letters would be loving and encouraging and if they weren't on track, Paul's letters would be loving and confrontational. Uh, and the churches in the region of Galatia were in the second kind. And that's what the, the kind of the tone of the, of the book of Galatians is. And the reason for it is, is that after Paul left, a group of people came in called the Judaizers. And they were people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. Uh, but they taught people that in order to be saved... You needed to trust in Jesus as the Son of God, but you also needed to follow the ancient Jewish law, the same law that Jesus himself followed. In summary, what they said was, if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to spend eternity with God, then you needed Jesus plus something else. And, and the book of Galatians is Paul's passionate response to that claim. Thus far, uh, we've gone through chapters one through three, the first half of the letter, and we're going to do chapter four today, but I need to prepare you for chapter four. Uh, just imagine like, a, you know how you go out to eat with your friends, which is an odd reference because like, remember going out to eat? Remember friends, you know? But it's, anyway, but just throw your mind and past as far back as it needs to go to remember this and, and pretend with me that you're out to eat with some buddies. And, but you've decided to be good, right? You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna have like a little bit of bread, maybe a side salad, and then like a reasonable entree. But, but as dinner gets towards the end of the time together, your friend that has that ridiculous metabolism that is hard not to resent, you know, that friend, uh, they say, you know what? I'm feeling like I want the quadruple chocolate heart stopper. And a little voice in the back of your head goes, you've been good. And you're like, yeah, I have been good. And so you're like, me too. I'm in on that. Give me one of those also. And a few bites in uh, these blood thickening bites that are starting to make their way directly to your hips, you realize that you've had as many calories in the last minute as you had had the entire previous hour. 
That's chapter four of Galatians. Because what Paul's about to do is he's about to summarize three full chapters into only three verses, and they are going to be rich. And we are going to take our time. We're going to savor these verses like you're meant to savor a rich dessert. And as we savor these verses together, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to address why so many followers of Jesus do not experience the full joy and freedom that they're supposed to. And if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever wondered why this is not a daily experience that you have as a follower of Jesus, then I hope God speaks to you during our time. All right, so the way that Paul ends chapter three is he's talking about the law. And he's saying, ultimately, the law is good, but the law was always meant to be temporary, all right? It was always meant to be replaced with something better. It's like childhood. It's really great to be a kid. It's not a good place to get stuck. And all the 20-somethings that are home right now with their parents because of quarantine just felt that, right? It's not a good place to get stuck. It's always meant to be replaced with something better. That's what the law is. Well, the first few verses of chapter four is where Paul basically kind of puts a bow on that conversation. And it's actually verse four of chapter four where we start our dessert. And Paul really starts to go uh, deep in just a few verses. So chapter four, verse four of the book of Galatians starts like this. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, now just right there, I stinking love that verse. And the reason that I love that verse is the phrase, the fullness of time is loaded with meaning. Paul is implying in that verse that all of human history has ultimately been orchestrated by God up to the precise correct moment for Jesus to come into our world. And he's not just referencing and talking about like the history of the Jewish people as recorded in the Old Testament because the history, the narrative that's recorded in the Old Testament, it actually stops 400 years before Jesus is born. But that doesn't mean that God stops working because actually at the same time the Old Testament narrative ends, there's a man born in the nation of Macedon and his name is Philip. The, the history books are going to know him as Philip II. And what he's going to do is he is, through military innovation and brilliant strategy, he's going to conquer Greece. And Philip has a son, and his name is Alex. And Alex is going to be taught by his dad, Philip II, and his tutor, Aristotle, that the Greek culture is so extraordinary that it would be a gift to take it to the, to the world and Alexander, who you may remember from social studies class, is Alexander the Great. He took that seriously, seriously enough that he proceeds to conquer the known world. And he takes with him Greek culture and more importantly, the Greek language, which means that for the first time in human history, all of the known world is united under one language. But then before Alexander's able to consolidate his gains, like actually, you know, kind of consolidate his empire, he suddenly and mysteriously dies and his empire shatters. And now it's being run by distant relatives and former generals, which means that it's weak and it leaves room for another empire to rise, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, you know, takes over everything virtually that Alexander had conquered, including Israel. But they do consolidate their power. 
And they put in something that you, again, might remember from social studies class called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. This is where they encouraged trade and travel, and they facilitated that by the building of roads and protecting those roads with legionaries, which means for the first time in human history, the known world is united under one language and their safe travel. When Jesus rose from the dead, he gave his followers a command. Christians know it as the Great Commission. It's in Matthew 28. The command is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And when Jesus gave that command, he gave that command at the precise moment in all of human history where it was actually possible to carry it out. The fullness of time. And guys, that's just the first bite. That's the first half of the first verse. I told you this thing was going to be rich. Let's do this, man. Let's keep going into the rest of verse four. Paul continues that verse and he says, look, uh, for when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When God sent his son into this world, he sent him as a human. And so Jesus was born as all human beings are under the law. That means under the expectations of God's law. And Jesus himself summarized the law for us in this way. He said, look, the expectations of the law are that you would love God and love others perfectly. That's the standard. Okay, so when, when Paul describes the standard of the law, he says the law is good. The law is good, but the, the, the issue is, is that we're all born underneath that standard. And Harrison helped us last week by telling us that the law is like a mirror. That, that when you look at this standard, this standard that we are meant to live up to, it's like a mirror. It shows us who we are. And when you look at this standard, you can't help but notice how far short you fall. You see, anytime we ever put anything in our lives above God, we fall short. Anytime we as image bearers of God ever treat another image bearer of God, another person with disdain or disrespect, we fall short. Every time we are personally prideful, jealous, bitter, resentful, hateful, we fall short. We fail, we sin. And that means that when we look at the mirror of the law, the picture that it reflects back to us, not flattering. Paul says that this is painful. It's painful to live under the law because the law is good and yet to live under these standards, to live under this expectation and know you're falling short and know that you can never change that yourself. It's like carrying a burden. It's like being under pressure and it can be crushing and so Paul says that it's actually almost as if we are enslaved. Well, Jesus, Jesus is born into the exact same situation, but Jesus is not merely a man. Jesus is also fully God. And so Jesus is capable of doing something that no man could ever actually accomplish, living up to the standards of the law. See, Jesus actually loved God. 
He loved God so much that everything he ever did and everything he ever said was all centered on God. The Bible tells us that he would leave behind everything and everybody else all the time to find a secret place that he could spend more time with his father in heaven. And he loved others. He spoke up for people that could not speak up for themselves. He treated outcasts in society with dignity. He he served with joy. He forgave those who hurt him. Jesus stood up underneath the burden of the law. In fact, Jesus even told people that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it by meeting its standards. And Paul tells us for what purpose. He says, starting in verse five, he says that the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The word there that's translated as as redeemed It's a word that means to free someone from slavery by paying the the owner of that slave their full price. This is what Jesus did for us. See, See, Jesus had met the standard of the law, which means that he had lived a perfect life. He had never sinned himself. And because he had never sinned himself, what he was able to do is he was able instead to take our sin and our failure upon himself. He died on a cross. He paid the price for our sin. In our place, Jesus' blood was the price of our redemption. It was the price of our freedom. But the verse doesn't stop there. The verse keeps going. The gospel doesn't stop there either. The gospel actually has a second part that does not stop at redemption. In fact, it describes that we are redeemed so that we can receive the adoption of sons. And the word there that's translated as adoption as sons, the Greek word actually just means the sonship. And it's a legal term. It's a legal term is is that in the ancient Greco-Roman world, a wealthy man who had no uh, heirs of his own, no children of his own, he could identify one of his servants and adopt him as a son, which means that someone who had been born as a slave with no relationship to the father now suddenly has the legal status of sonship and all the privileges that go along with it. See, the gospel actually starts with Jesus taking our sin upon himself. But the full gospel is that there's an exchange. In exchange for our sin and our failure, Jesus pays the price, but in exchange for it, he gives us his righteousness, his perfect life, and all the privileges that go along with it. Paul emphasizes this in in the next verse. In the next verse, Paul says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you ask him to be your Lord and your Savior, God sends his presence, his spirit into us. It indwells us and it teaches us to cry, Abba, Father. Now, I told you that the entire, this entire letter is written in Greek. It's the universal language of this area, except for one word, Abba. Abba is not Greek. Abba is Aramaic. That's the language that Jesus spoke And it means a familiar term for father. It's like uh, the English equivalent would be dad or daddy. 
It's a shockingly familiar term for God Almighty, Lord of Heaven's armies. But here's the question. Why would Paul use the Aramaic there? Like, why not use the Greek? Everybody that he's writing to, none of them would speak Aramaic. So why not use the Greek equivalent of dad or the Greek equivalent of daddy? Paul's making a point. And the point that he's making is that the relationship that you have with God the Father now is not similar to the relationship that Jesus had with his father. It's the same because he even uses the same word that Jesus used, Mark 14, 36. Jesus addresses his father, Abba, Father, with you all things are possible. This is how Jesus interacted with God. And Paul's making the point that you don't have a similar but lesser relationship with the Father. Through Jesus, you have the same relationship with the Father. You are adopted as, a, as an heir, adopted as a son. You are a co-heir with Christ, which is how he stamps the whole thing. In verse seven, he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The full gospel has two parts, has two parts. Jesus not only takes our sin, but he exchanges it for his righteousness. Jesus secures not only our freedom, but our adoption. Yet the whole reason that Paul is writing this letter is because he is broken hearted. He's broken hearted because there are so many followers of Jesus in this region of Galatia who are not living day to day in the full beauty and power of the gospel itself. It's broken his heart. And I think the same thing breaks the heart of God today. I think it breaks the heart of God today because it's easy, it's far too common that followers of Jesus view their salvation in terms of the first half of the gospel, but not the second. That we go, yes, Jesus has forgiven us, but, but then we think that after he's forgiven us, it's still up to us to, to meet the standard, to, to write in our good deeds so that God would look on us with favor and on, with love. There are too many followers of Jesus that when they look at their salvation, they think that it's only redemption and they forget about adoption. It's as if, it's as if that when Jesus forgives us, he takes our slate and he erases it. He removes the sin and he removes the failure, but then he hands it back to us. He goes, okay, I've wiped the slate clean, but now it's up to you to, to write your righteousness in. Now it's up to you to, to fill this slate up with good deeds. And if you live like that, the way that it looks is that you are grateful for the forgiveness of God. Praise God for his forgiveness of you. And yet, you also live under the burden of still trying to measure up, still trying to earn the blessings and the favor of God through your behavior. And man, if, if you're in that position, man, you feel that burden. Some of you right now, you feel that burden. When you sin, the, your response is to become anxious, even despairing. You beat yourself up. Your first response is to run from God and his people and not to God and his people. Man, if you are bearing that burden, I want you to know. 
I want you to know that it was never God's will for you that you would live your daily experience under his grace and his gospel struggling to meet his standards. That was never his will for you in Jesus. It's as if, it's as if God has tried to give you a gift, but you insist on giving it back and striving to earn it. Never God's will for you. Paul says it's like, it's like opting to enter back into slavery. Verse eight in chapter four, he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? I want to highlight something in that again. It says in verse 9, it says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? Look, when the Bible says, talks about knowing someone, it's never just like an intellectual knowledge about them. It's always talking about being in a relationship with them. And so a better way even to think of that verse is for it to say, Paul basically is saying, hey, look, now that you know and love God, or even more importantly, now that God knows and loves you, how can you turn back? How can you live only the first half of the gospel? Tim Keller is a pastor that I really respect. He, he said it this way. He said, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. In verse 12, Paul says he is pleading with the Galatians. In the same spirit, I want to plead with you. Follower of Jesus, my brother or sister, please do not forget the full gospel. Jesus has not only wiped your slate clean, he has written his righteousness upon it. You are now a beloved, adopted son of your Abba Father. He has welcomed you into his presence and his heart is unshakably set upon you. But I know, I know how difficult it is to keep that in mind, to remember this truth. I know how easily it is, how easy it is to slip back into trying to earn God's favor and approval through what we do what we say. So how do we do it? Practically, practically, how do we keep in mind the full gospel? Well, actually, Paul gives this guidance in Galatians 4, 6. If we go back to it, I'll remind you, it says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, the first thing to point out there is, is that what, what Paul says is you are a son, that is a legal status thing. It doesn't matter how, if you're feeling it or not, that is who you are. But the work of the Spirit, he says, 
is that that's basically the work of the Spirit is to help you actually experience your sonship. That's how you feel it. That's how you experience it day to day. If you, if you look at it, it says that it's in our hearts helping us to cry, crying Abba, Father. The word there that's translated as crying is krasden. And it means like this wrenching, passionate shout or cry. It's the kind of thing that you can't premeditate, right? It's the kind of thing that you do in response to something because you have such deep feeling or deep passion about something. But it's not just a cry like that. It's a cry in someone's direction, it says he cried to the Father, to our Abba Father. Look, this is talking about prayer. This is prayer. The key to experiencing the full gospel, actually living day to day in the assurance of who you are in Jesus, the key to that is prayer. So here's my challenge for you. If you feel like you're not living in the full gospel of what Jesus has done for you, my challenge for you is simply this. For the next seven days, for three minutes a day, spend time thanking Jesus for the full gospel. Use Galatians 4, verse 7. Galatians 4, 7 says, If you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Look, just split it in half. The first half of the gospel is the first half. You are no longer a slave. Spend time with that part of the verse and spend time thanking Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for erasing my slate by paying for it on the cross, right? Spend time thanking him for that and then move to the second half of the verse. It says, if you are a son, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Spend that time thanking Jesus that his righteousness is now yours. That in exchange for your sin, he gave you his perfect life and all the privileges that come with it. And as you do that, you will find yourself, hopefully, having this Krasden moment, this, this moment of prayer that's almost crying out in gratitude to your Savior. If you do that, three minutes a day for seven days, I think that you'll experience God's love for you. And then my encouragement would be at the end of that time, just do whatever the Spirit leads you to do next. If it's to double down and do another week, do that. If it's to grow in your prayer life and continue to seek the face of your Abba Father, then do that. I want to point out that in our Compassion YouTube page, there's a whole playlist of guided prayer sessions. If you want to grow in your ability to pray, that's the perfect place to start. We will guide you through what it looks like to spend time in prayer with your Father. And I want to tell you this. And if you already have a prayer time, I still recommend you do this. I still recommend that you do this. You should do this because we never outgrow the gospel. Just add it into what you're doing. But man, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is, is that like the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross and what that means for us afterwards, that's not like Christianity 101 and then we graduate to something more. No, no, no. The work and person of Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. He's the center of everything we believe and everything we do. You never outgrow the gospel. So even if you have a regular prayer time, I recommend you do this. And I hope that God uses it to open new depths of joy and love in your life. Now, I want to spend the last few moments we have together addressing a couple of things that, that may have come up while we are talking through Galatians 4. The first thing is, 
is that some of you might be wondering, look, uh, if, if my whole thing is, is that God does not care about what I do or do not do, does that mean that Christians get to do whatever they want to do? And the answer to that, good news, is in Galatians 5. That's next week when Paul talks about that. And so come back next week and we'll address that one. But the, the other one that I want to address is that anyone that during the course of our conversation about Galatians 4 just got locked up, kind of staring at their own chalkboard. You see, uh, for some of us, what we have on our chalkboard is uh, we've got the kind of words on our chalkboard that, that seem really difficult to erase. The kind of words that are on the chalkboard are words that represent years of, of pain. They represent years of failure. They represent burned bridges. They represent uh, shame and regret. They're probably the kinds of words that you've tried to erase on your own and failed to do so. They're the kind of words that have defined you maybe for decades. And when you think about the idea of your slate being washed clean, maybe you're even a follower of Jesus and it's hard to imagine it being possible. To address that, uh, I want to talk about what Paul talks about at the end of Galatians 4. At the end of Galatians 4, Paul brings up the story of Hagar and Sarah. Now, the story of Hagar and Sarah is rich in its own right, and the kinds of things that Paul is doing by bringing this up are incredible, but we've, we've already had our dessert, and so I'm going to keep this one simple. The story of Hagar and Sarah basically comes down to the fact that long, long ago, God approached a man named Abraham, and he said, I am going to bring about something great through you. Between you and your wife, Sarah, I'm going to start a new family, which is going to grow into a nation, and ultimately through this family tree, I'm going to save the world. But the problem with that is, is not only that Abraham was, was like really old, but his wife, Sarah, was unable to have children. The Bible says that she was barren. And, and I want you to know that I have friends that struggle with infertility, and so I know that the word barren is abrasive at the least. But, but I believe that the Bible is not being insensitive. What the Bible is trying to communicate is that, is that Sarah was not going to be very, very, very unlikely to have children. It was impossible that she would be able to have children. And you've got to realize to understand the story that, that from... From an ancient Near Eastern perspective, that Sarah's position as being unable to have children, especially before God had instituted his people, had instituted his law, from that perspective, from that culture's perspective, Sarah would have been deemed worthless if she was unable to have kids. Broken, even cursed. And it's possible that Sarah herself, that when she took down her slate, that the kind of words that she would have written here would represent that broken, worthless, cursed. 
Hagar, on the other hand, was young and beautiful and capable of having children. And ultimately what happens in this story is that that God looks down on these two women. One young and beautiful, the other old and barren, and he chooses to save the world through the old barren woman. And through the fullness of time, eventually another woman who is descended from Sarah, from that miracle, she's going to give birth to an unexpected son. Not unexpected because she struggles with infertility, but unexpected because she was a virgin. And yet through that son, God would fulfill his promise to Abraham and save his people. Now the point of this story is the fact that this is how God's grace works. That maybe when you look down at your board, you see these words that represent this pain, that represent this shame, that represent the kinds of things that you think they're impossible to erase. That maybe you feel as broken, as useless, and as marginalized as an old barren woman would have felt in the ancient Near East. Paul's response to that through this story is that it doesn't matter who you were and it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter those things because the whole point of the gospel is that it's not based off of what you can or cannot do. The the whole situation with Sarah is that she was incapable of bringing about the future that God had planned point of the gospel is it's not about what you can do and it's not about what you can what you what you have done it's only about what God has done and so as you look at your slate as you look at the words that are written there I want you to know that it is God's good pleasure it is his great joy to take those words from your slate and replace them with the righteousness of the perfect life of Jesus. To replace them with something better and maybe whatever is on your slate, maybe this is your fullness of time moment. Where at just the right moment, the precise moment in time, God sends Jesus into your life to change, to wipe the slate clean and replace it with something better. It's one decision away. It's one decision away. There's a prayer button in our online services. And if you want to talk to somebody about what it looks like to put your trust in Jesus, he will take what is on your slide, what is on your slate, and he will replace it with his own righteousness because that is the gospel of Jesus Christ who has secured not only our freedom, but he has secured our adoption and welcomed us into his presence. And if you feel far from him, I want you to know that you are one decision away from being restored, being assured of his love and his grace. And I'm gonna pray right now that God would take the fullness of time and change your life today. Let's pray together. Father, We are grateful 
for Galatians 4 and the good word that is found within that, the encouraging word as we read about the full gospel of Jesus Christ, what his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection that followed means for us, that we are not only freed from the burden of measuring up to you based off of our behavior, but freed from the burden of being under the standard of the law, but that we also have been adopted as sons, that Jesus' perfect life and his righteousness and all the privileges that come with that, not only our status with you in this life, but our eternity with you in the next. Those things have been secured by our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for followers of Jesus who are praying with me right now, any of them that are only living out the first half of the gospel, God, empower them and free them and take them into places of greater joy and love. Take them into a place where they live the daily experience of your full gospel. And I pray for anyone right now whose slate is still covered with their guilt and their shame because they have never submitted it to you. May they see their need for Jesus. May they, may they submit and ask him to take their sin so that he can write his righteousness on their chalkboard instead, giving them a new story and a new future. God, that is what you have done for so many of us. I pray that you do it for someone else right now, right here. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we can stay in this moment for just a little bit longer. Um, because what we want to do is we want to invite you to actually put what you're hearing into practice. All right? So you can, for instance, just a couple questions. You know, what is it that is on your slate? You know, as Marcus has been talking about it, you've probably been thinking about it. So, so what is it? You know, maybe it's, I was neglected, all right? Whatever that word is, think about that word. Now, now think of the fact that he erased that through the cross. And then think about what he replaced, all right? Think, think about those things. And, and even if you're in a relationship or a group of people where you've built some trust and vulnerability, you can even have that conversation. And so think about what was on your slate? What did he clean from your slate? And what did he give you? All right. And another thing Marcus talked about was this idea of a way to stay in it and focused on the full gospel is through prayer, a daily conversation, communication with God, a daily walking with him. If you knew the creator of the universe would spend every minute with you, wouldn't you want that? That's what he made available. But it's, it's more than just a good idea, right? He mentioned some things that you could actually put into play. But right now, what if you actually said, tomorrow morning at this time, this is when I'm going to meet with him. Or right before I eat lunch, I'm going to read a passage and I'm going to talk with him. Or right before I go to bed, you know, whatever it is. But right now, think, this is the time I'm going to do this. And if you're crazy enough and courageous enough, why don't you tell somebody around you and say, okay, why don't we do this together? But that's the invitation for you. So if whatever step you want to take, uh, again, our team's available. We'd love to meet you, love to talk with you. Again, thank you for being a part of this, and we'll see you next time.